As I like to emphasize, this podcast is called the Training Business Podcast. So while I like to talk about or have guests who talk about training theory, learning models and learning engagement, etc., I think there are better podcasts out there on those subjects. The key word for me is business. What can my guests and I do to help you with your training business? And for me, that means marketing and sales, the activities which attract and convert paying customers to your training business. With that in mind, today's guest is Matt Dixon, who co-authored one of the most important books in sales literature in the last three decades. This is episode 62 of the Training Business Podcast. Hey, and welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Hi, welcome to the show. My name is Mark Garrett Hayes, and this is the podcast for you, for training business professionals, training business owners, learning and development consultants, freelance trainers, coaches all around the world. And the goal of this episode today and every single episode so far is to help you to start to grow and to scale your training business. Now, back in 2011, a book was published on the subject of sales. To say it caused a seismic shift in how people approach selling, particularly complex sales or solution sales, it's not an understatement. It certainly influenced the sales training and coaching I offer in my business, but not just what I sell, the training and coaching itself, but rather how I sell. I was a speaker at a sales conference in Warsaw this week, and the book in question, the topic among many salespeople, was the Challenger Sale. In fact, the Challenger Sale, the book in question, was at the core of the 1.5 days of training I gave to a group of salespeople from among the 950 attending the event. Matt Dixon, one of the authors of the Challenger Sale, is today's guest, and he's speaking to us live from Washington, D.C. Hey, Matt, and welcome to the show. Hey, Mark. Thank you for having me. So to give the listeners context, um, back in 2011, if that's correct, together with yep. Brent Adamson, you wrote a book titled The Challenger Sale, How to Take Control of the Customer Conversation. And um, praise from Professor Neil Rackham and many people who are familiar with sales literature knows that, uh, would know that he's the creator of Spin Selling. And he yeah. described your concept of the challenger sale as the most important advance in selling for many years, which is high praise indeed. Why did you write the book? And were you and Brent surprised by its success? Um, I would say, uh, so on the second question, uh, yes. Um, I think it, it makes sense in retrospect, but I think it's like anything where um, you, you, you seem really smart, but only because you, the, the stars aligned <laughs> properly. So, um, but on the first question as to why we wrote it, you know, we, so Brent and I, um, as well as our, uh, uh, many of our colleagues who we talk about in the book, um, folks like Nick Toman, who we, who is an author on the, the sequel to Challenger Customer, which I know we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, we were uh, leading a research program for a company called CEB, which is now a part of Gartner Group. Um, mm -hmm. Gartner acquired them about two years ago. And the, the way that model worked was um, we built networks of senior executives. So in our case, for me and Nick and, and Brent and our colleagues, he um, oversaw the sales, what was called at the time, the Sales Leadership Council. Um, and it was a group of about uh, 700 uh, heads of sales, all business to business, so um, executives leading large-scale sales organizations, um, and they would uh, rely on us as researchers to uh, help them answer big questions, um, you know, around everything from uh, using technology to improve productivity to coverage model design to key account management. And the question that really came up, um, and this is actually where, where we start the book, I think, in the, in the forward, um, we... As a, a subscription-based research business, you can imagine when uh, when times are tough, where we can be a discretionary item at best. Um, you know, the when the cost of keeping your CEB subscription versus letting one of your salespeople go um, is a pretty easy one for uh, for most heads of sales. And so, we were really eager to help sales leaders in um, uh, in some way uh, to provide some insight that could help them navigate uh, the financial downturn. So, this was back in uh, 08, 09 when we first came up with the idea. Um, and so we launched a study um, uh, into uh, it, across our membership, and we 
asked uh, really the question that we're trying to answer is what is it in this really, really tough sales environment that your best sellers are doing to successfully uh, navigate um, those troubling economic times um, you know, where customers are not willing to do anything risky, risky they're not willing to uh, de- you know, deploy major amounts of capital toward a new solution. Um, and it's very, very hard to get your customers off the fence. But nevertheless, there's still some salespeople who are being, there were some who are still being quite successful. And so we uh, launched a study to try to isolate what it is that uh, those people are doing uh, that's different from everyone else. Now, we didn't go into it with the intention to write a book. It was in the way our business worked is we kind of worked in sort of six-month study cycles. And we were so surprised by what we found, um, and it was so counterintuitive to the conventional wisdom out there um, in sales that we kind of camped out on this question of uh, you know, selling with insight and what challengers do differently and really uh, continue to explore for several more years. In fact, then creating enough material for a second book, The Challenger Customer, that came out a few years later. Um, and it was, it was very eye-opening. And now, I guess your second question about uh, the surprise that the book was so successful, I think, you know, again, in retrospect, when we look back on that experience, um, what I would say is, one, um, it was a, a moment in the sales world where people were really um, uh, desperate for something new and for, uh, for new insights. So the, the timing was really good. I think um, even if you put the downturn aside, one of the big, one of the big changes, I think you know, Challenger ended up being a story less about selling in a downturn and more about how do you sell to information-empowered customers. And this was a, a trend that had been going on for quite a long time. This is what uh, really interested uh, Professor Rackham actually in the work is this idea that customers with so much information at their fingertips can push the salesperson farther and farther out uh, in the purchase journey, uh, really effectively disintermediating the salesperson. You know, all the things we used to do back when uh, Neil wrote Spin Selling to go in and ask big open-ended questions and diagnose the customer's needs, you know, often the customer is doing that on their own mm. uh, and they're, they're not including you in that learning journey. And so they, they call upon you when they got to buy something. And as, as the, in the mean-spirited words of one uh, customer who I interviewed told me, I asked him, well, why do you still even meet with salespeople at all if you can do all this learning on your own? And he said, well, I can't get a discount from a computer, can I? So I've got to meet with them at some point. <laughs> and so I thought that was utterly depressing, but pretty, pretty but anyways, Challenger, yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Challenger, I think, hit on that, um, that trend that you know, things were already headed south. The downturn simply exacerbated it. Um, people found that uh, some of the sales techniques they've been, they've been uh, driving across their sales organization were not delivering the same benefit they once did back in the 80s and 90s, and the wheels were really starting to come off. Uh, the second thing was um, that we, uh, we took a database approach uh, in the study. I think you know, we're sometimes um, criticized for this, but actually um, Brent and Nick and I are quite proud of this, that we're, we're actually not salespeople. We're researchers. We're, um, you know, for the most part, academics. And uh, what always frustrated us about sales was uh, how much conventional wisdom there is out there. If you pick up most books on sales and selling, most of them don't have a whole lot of data in there. Uh, they're mostly personal opinion, you know, uh, spun from the perspective of, you know, in my 40 years of sales um, performance or sale, my 40-year sales career, here's what's, here are my secrets, here's what worked for me. Right. And there's a, there's a place for that. It's quite, uh, you know, that can be very powerful insight. But I think when we showed up with, with actual quantitative data, it really captured the attention of the market uh, in a way that was very different. Yeah, actually, it was very. That was the other reason that Neil was interested in the book because he he said it reminded him of the work he did around spin selling. Uh, one of his, I think, regrets was that you know spin selling uh, still to this day was one of the only r- truly rigorous research based studies of what great salespeople do. Uh, and then when we came along with Challenger, I think he felt um, in some ways vindicated or relieved that you know science was coming back to sales. Uh, and so that's why he uh, he. Uh, joined up with us, uh, agreed to write the forward and help us uh, promote the book. Okay. So I think that's something we should clarify. Um, SPIN is an acronym. Um, yeah. if, if someone is familiar with, with sales literature, you know, books, milestones in the history of selling, SPIN is a big one, of course, because it, it's something which introduced the concept of consultative selling. Yes. Uh, so SPIN stands for situation, problem, implication, and need. Yep. Okay. That's so right. let, let's let's go back a, a moment. And I think it would be helpful if we walk our listeners through the history of, of the breakthroughs in sales, because that fascinates me. It's my area. And Professor Rackham, who created the concept of spin selling, wrote the forward to your book. And he, he laid out the, the kind of the breakthroughs of the milestones in the last hundred years or so. First of all, we had the, the, the hunter or farmer or the hunter and farmer model. 
Right. Very briefly, what is that, uh, the Hunter yeah. Forward model? So was, I, and I love the way that Neil in the forward, he kind of walks through these four um, breakthroughs. And I love the way he does it in shorthand uh, because it mm. would, um, as, as a researcher, I would probably take a lot more time to explain <laughs> what that was. But in brief, <laughs> I'll try to take a page out of uh, uh, Professor Rackham's book that in brief, um, uh, this is actually an idea that originated probably about 100 years ago, maybe a little bit more uh, out of the insurance industry where, um, as Neil says, some anonymous genius, and I'm sure that person uh, has a name, but I, I don't know that anybody knows exactly who came up with the idea, but it, we do know it came out of the insurance industry, which was this um, this breakthrough concept that companies can generate more revenue, um, more sales, uh, if they separate two key activities uh, in the sales organization. It used to be that um, if there was one person who would go and sell insurance policies and then go collect the premium uh, uh, monies around those policies. Um, and, you know, uh, if you will, upsell or cross-sell the customer when they needed something uh, additional. Um, the breakthrough was that uh, companies could, I saw that it was more effective and more efficient, and it was a better coverage model to actually separate those two jobs, have one group responsible for hunting to bring in new customers, and another group responsible for farming. So for uh, renewing those accounts, growing those accounts, cultivating those accounts and those relationships. So that was a quite a big breakthrough, which today is, is quite commonplace. Almost like Adam Smith's uh, division of labor, the idea yeah, that, exactly, you, you know, exactly. rather than have one person do everything, why don't we have, let's say, in my experience, inside salespeople who typically will do the kind of legwork, uh, the kind of initial contact, setting up some kind of appointment for a field salesperson then to go in and close face-to-face. Uh, right. Right, a very efficient and very a very mm. effective way of dividing labor and, and covering the market. Okay, so the next breakthrough then was The Psychology of Selling, and that was a book published in, well, 1925 by E.K. Strong. And um, I think for many people who are familiar with sales training, it introduced the concepts of, let's say, formal sales training, uh, how to present features or benefits, how to yeah. handle, overcome objections and how to close a sale. H how significant do you think that, that uh, the idea was that you could learn something, you could learn how to sell? Well, yeah, and I think, I think it's that last uh, point that you've uh, made here, Mark, is that the, the importance of uh, Strong's work that was that um, the selling, which I think had always been perceived as something that you're either um, born to do or, or not, um, that it was sort of demystified that this was actually a set of learnable uh, techniques um, that can be broken down in um, around you know key skills and competencies mm. that can be taught in, to the average person. Um, and I think you know, unfortunately, I think that that perception still exists. We'll talk about challenger here in a moment, but mm. but I often am asked, are you know, are challengers born or made? And I think when people hear uh, this view around, here's what challengers do, they kind of jump to this conclusion that, well, my current sellers can't do that. They don't do that. They can't do it. I have to go fire them and hire a whole new um, a team of sellers. And I think what uh, Professor Strong showed is that it you know, really is a set of teachable techniques, much like, like any other uh, set of teachable techniques that can be learned, that can be mastered, that can be developed through um, uh, proper coaching and, and training over time. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's a great point you made is that uh, you touched on the point that um, it's actually learnable because many people have this idea that uh, a salesperson is someone who is slick, who is charming. Uh, they're able to sort of just basically dump all this information on someone. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that's an innate skill. But actually, um, it is possible to learn how to sell. It is possible. Right. And, and this is the next thing I think that uh, Professor Rackham himself introduced in the 70s is that there's a model called spin selling. Now, it's perhaps uh, best used or most frequently associated with uh, consultative selling and typically yeah. in the sphere of complex products. Yeah. Um, uh, so that's the difference between transactional selling, which is often this kind of retail, you know, someone comes back and renews a license or buy something simple. Whereas consultative selling, and this is my definition, is where there might be a multi-stake uh, holder, multi-step process, selling yeah, something yeah. which impacts multiple levels of an organization. Um, but jumping forward, we come to, then to the challenger sale itself. What were the main discoveries from your research in, in putting this book? And I think it's a great time to touch upon the, what you think are the five profiles of salespeople out there. Sure. Uh, yeah, that was, that's probably the, if you will, the, the center point. I guess the, if I were to uh, point to the, the few big ahas or if mm. you will, the, bump, the bumper stickers that um, you, you would um, walk away from or walk away from, uh, from the book with mm -hmm. uh, the first would be 
that what we found is, um, you know, in the eyes of the, the first big thing, I think, was that the world of, of customer buying has changed. As, as much as Challenger is a uh, discussion of selling um, in what great salespeople do, I think there's this lead steer effect, really, um, if you think of, you know, kind of a herd of cattle, which is um, the, the herd follows the lead steer and the lead steer is often the one, uh, you know, sensing what's out in the distance and what the dangers are and what's, mm. what's changed in the landscape. Yeah. And I think very much... Um, that's what you see leading salespeople do. They, they, they do well. If you want to get a view of what's coming next in sales, it's um, often best to just look at what your top tier sellers are doing. And what you'll find is they're often zagging when the entire organization is zigging and they're, they're um, uh, developing their own approaches that they're probably not being formally trained or coached on, uh, but they see that this is, a, you know, um, the landscape has changed and that survival and performance requires adapting your approach. And so I think the first thing we found was that the, the landscape had changed quite a bit. So we, mm. one of the big um, insights this is actually ironically not in the book, but it's the, it's the first insight we lead with when we, whenever we present the material is that, you know, today uh, in this, this data point has generated a lot of controversy. Uh, some people say it's too low. Some people say it's too high. Um, but, uh, but either way, it's bad news for salespeople, which is that, uh, the, the average customer is almost 60% of the way through their purchase journey before they ever reach out to a salesperson to engage them and have a conversation. So, mm. you know, if you looked at this back in um, Neil's era or um, uh, EK Strong's era or the, the the era we talked about way back 100 years ago, that was not true at all, right? Because there was no internet. There was no way to find out about a company, uh, their value proposition, their solutions, their products the ROI, none of that stuff. You had to sit down with a salesperson to learn these things. But our customers today are so inundated with information and not just information, but also the ability to collect information and insight um, from networks of peers on LinkedIn or, or other you know, uh, fora of that nature. Uh, they have access to third-party purchasing consultants. All these things enable the, the customer to go out and diagnose their own needs um, shortlist the suppliers who can help them uh, solve a problem, compare those suppliers across the full range of um, features and benefits of their solutions, look at case studies of companies like them to understand what ex returns could we expect, um, even get a pretty good sense of how much should we pay for the solution, and only then do they actually call the salesperson to begin the negotiation. So it's um, really put today's salesperson who may have grown up in the era of consultative selling being taught to go in and, and diagnose the customer's needs, to find out what is keeping the customer up at night, it really puts that seller in a very bad spot because all the things they've been taught to do have already happened, but they happened without the salesperson there uh, to participate in that uh, in that discussion. Mm. So all that's really left to compete on is price. So that was the, the first big aha. And then the, the counterpoint to that, I think, is as much as that's depressing uh, to hear, there is good news, which is when you actually look at, and we did... What is it that separates winners from losers in the customer's eyes um, when it comes to a purchase decision? What we found is um, that the most important variable in separating a first and set versus second place finisher in a uh, in a purchase or in a sale is um, the sales experience itself. It's more important than brand and reputation. It's more important than your product and service quality. It's more important than your value to price ratio. That's very surprising for people to hear. And what we always say is, look, it doesn't mean those things are unimportant. They're very important. Um, but what it tells you is they might get you to the shortlist or get you to the table, but they're not going to win you the deal. That ultimately what separates the first and second place finisher in the eyes of the customer is the quality of that sales experience. And here's the thing, it's not any sales experience. Mm -hmm. It's a sales experience where the salesperson brings new ideas to the table. They teach the customer something they didn't know. They bring in overlooked opportunity, uh, perhaps, to that customer. They help the customer think through different ways of solving business problems and navigating through alternate uh, paths and avoiding pitfalls and landmines and so on and so forth. So it's a very insight-based sales conversation, it, which is a different sales conversation that salespeople for decades had been taught to execute, which is, again, to come in and ask yeah. the customer, um, hey, what's keeping you up at night? What it told us is that for today's customer, where they can go and learn everything on their own, what they really want from the salesperson is the thing that they couldn't learn on their own. So in other words, it's more important for salespeople today to come in and not ask the customer what's keeping them up at night, instead show the customer what should be keeping them up at night, lead with that insight. So that was the the first big aha, which is really about the change in the way that customers are buying today. The second was what you said, which is the five profiles of salespeople. We did a statistical analysis. Um, won't go into the methodology. We go into a lot of that in the book. 
But at the end of the day, we found that all salespeople fall into five uh, profiles, uh, hard workers, relationship builders, lone wolves, problem solvers, and challengers. Um, uh, Very quickly, the hard worker is your kind of... um, uh, quite a, quite a mechanistic seller, so they they believe sales is a numbers game. Um, as long as I feed the top of the funnel and I execute on the sales process, I should hit my number at the end of the year. Um, activity levels are never a concern for your hard worker. They will uh, respond to more RFPs. They will answer more. They will send out more emails to customers. They will place more cold calls and knock on more customer doors than anybody else on the team. Because again, they think it's a numbers game. Mm. You've got your relationship builder. Your relationship builder is. Um, uh, they are. This really is your consultative seller. So this is the person who comes in and uh, diagnoses customer needs. They advocate for the customer. They act as a um, uh, an advocate, even a sherpa at some level for the customer inside the four walls of their own company. In their view, you know, customers are busy. They may need some special customization of our solution. It's my job to go make that happen for the customer. Maybe the customer just needs a discount. It's my job to fight for the on the customer's behalf to make sure they get the price. Uh, that would, um, uh, you know, they think is appropriate for this uh, solution. You've got um, uh, problem solvers. Problem solvers are kind of customer service representatives in salesperson's uh, clothing. Um, I mean, what I mean by that is they're more focused on post-deal execution than on getting the next uh, deal through the pipeline. And customers love that, by the way. Uh, the person who sold them the deal, um, sold them the product or the service, is on speed dial whenever anything goes wrong. But sales managers would much rather that that problem solver handed off to the people we pay to do that stuff, customer support, customer success, the implementation team, and that you get back to selling uh, the next deal. Uh, you've got lone wolves. Uh, lone wolves are sort of the prima donnas of the sales organization. Uh, they don't follow the sales process that you created. They don't use the materials uh, that marketing uh, investing creating. They, uh, as I often say, they sell things that you don't even make. Um, and, uh, and we let them get away with it. Uh, oftentimes when they hit their number, the, there's a bit of selection bias there though, because Lone wolves actually look, relatively speaking, like they are. They have a good chance of being high performers. They're they're a strong um, uh, group among these five profiles. But what I often remind people is, um, keep in mind the people who ignored the rules and missed their number were shown the exits. It, these yeah. are the people who ignore the rules and are allowed to get away with it. Um, and then lastly, we've got the challenger. So the challenger is, uh, you know, best described. We'll talk a little bit maybe about what they do and their behaviors um, as the conversation goes on today, mm. but. I would say at the highest level, think of them as sort of the debater on the team. They've got a provocative point of view. Uh, they're not afraid to use that point of view to push the customer's thinking, uh, to get the customer to think about things that all right, the com- customer was completely blind to. They like nothing more than, than having a bit of a debate uh, and a, an intellectual back and forth with the customer. Because in their mind, um, they, they're actually at some level almost looking for the customer to disagree with them as much as agree with them because they know that that's the moment of intellectual engagement. Now, the customer may be leaning in because you've said something so provocative uh, that it's it's really um, startled them, and they may have their only objective may be to prove to you that you're wrong and to poke holes in your argument. But challengers love that they they love that moment of engagement, and they say that they know that that's and that you know again. So you see some um, uh, evidence of this in the challenger customer, which we'll talk about later. Uh, but that's your that's your challenger, kind of sharp elbowed, uh, mm. opinionated, uh, strong point of view, not afraid to. Uh, to mix it up a bit, uh, not physically, of course, but intellectually uh, with the customer. Um, the the third thing I would say just before we talk more about challengers that we found is, you know, challenger, it, I think a lot of people jump to the conclusion that this is, this would make a great sales training program. And, and I think it would, but I think there's a, a big uh, caveat to that, which is a challenger is only partly about um, salespeople. Uh, it's in individual skills. It's as much about organizational capability. And what I mean by that is, on that companies were successful driving an insight-based selling approach, whether challenger or otherwise, um, will also uh, have as a very strong component of that um, that transformation, investing in insight-based content that salespeople can actually take out to customers to change the way that they think. And, and I often say this is sort of half in jest, but, but partly uh, in truth, which is, look, if, if you tell your people to go out and challenge customer thinking, to go out and tell customers they're, they're missing opportunities, they're thinking about it wrong, they're doing it wrong, and you don't give them anything insightful to say, then they're not challengers, they're just actually annoying. Um, and, uh, and it's not very much value to the customer. So it's the job of the organization, typically marketing, mm. uh, uh, to come up with these insight-based messages that challengers can then take to challenge customer thinking. But you've got to have both. You've got to have the salesperson who can challenge. You've got to have, of course, managers who know how to um, uh, coach to those behaviors but you've got to have that messaging and that content as well 
And that's the job of the company to come up with that. It's it's not fair uh, to voice that upon the salesperson. Um, and it's not realistic either. Your, your best salespeople are probably already doing it and they'll figure it out, but your average salespeople won't. They really need the company to help um, create those insights uh, that you can take out to go challenge customer thinking. Yeah. So we don't want people to think listening to this, okay, I'm going to put on my challenger hat and start being a contrarian, just literally yeah. challenging people for the sake yeah. of it. If you are going to challenge, you must, you must back it up. You must have some kind of insight. Right. So in effect, the challenger is someone who has a deep understanding of the customer's business. Um, yes. They're able to convince someone that they know what it's like to be in their shoes. They're comfortable having a strategic business focused conversation. They're not just turning up talking about themselves and their brochure and their company and their product and their testimonials, but they're bringing insight. They're able to, to give the prospect something of value, uh, maybe multiple times before they ever try and ask for anything or, or try and uh, sell anyone anything. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And one of, the, one of the things, one of my favorite lines in the book is where we talk about you know, the big difference between what the way most of us pitch our solutions or sell mm-hmm. our solutions or present our solution um, in a sales meeting to the customer and the way that a challenger uh, would do it is that your average salesperson, and, and you know, to be fair, almost every company in the world uh, leads with what makes them unique. So they, they start their story, as you, as you said just a moment ago, in very much the same spot. So let me tell you all about who we are as a company. Let me tell you about how, when we were founded. Let me tell you about um, how big we are and how global we are. Let me tell you about um, all the companies that trust us with their business. Let me tell you about um, how many offices we have around the world. Let me tell you about all of our solutions and how they're faster and better and cheaper than our competitors. Mm. Um, well, those things may actually be differentiated. Often they're not. Often those are things that, are, that our competitors could claim as well. Uh, which is a separate uh, issue, but let's assume that those things are actually truly use- unique. They are credible. They are defensible. They are demonstrable. They, they are unique cap- uh, differentiators in the mm. market. Uh, a challenger uh, doesn't lead with those things; they lead to those things. So what that means is, in a, a challenger conversation, the challenger is starting with insight that's relevant to the customer. Here's an opportunity that we see um, our best customers solving in a way that most customers don't. Here's an opportunity you may be overlooking. Um, hey, you know, uh, a often a lapel grabbing kind of head snapping um, insight that gets the customer to say, "Whoa, I've never thought of it that way before." And that's where the intellectual back and forth. And when the customer pushes back, boy, you've got to be able to, as you said, Mark, you've got to be able to back it up. It's got to be credible. It's got to be database. It's got to be. Uh, you've got to be able to show it uh, in a storytelling way. There's a lot that happens there. But when you ultimately get the customer to see that your insight is right, that they actually did miss something that's where you connect the dots to your solution. Mm. That it turns out we're the only supplier who can actually solve the problem that we just taught you uh, was out there that you didn't recognize before. But it's got to, all that stuff has got to come at the end. And so a challenger conversation in many respects will feel quite different for the customer who is coming in expecting to get the, you know, the, as, as Neil, I'll, borrow, I'll steal the shamelessly from Neil Rackham who um, would call this the, uh, the corporate parrot or the corporate, you know, the talking brochure salesperson. And that's what customers have become accustomed to expect. I think it's probably part of the reason that the customer is eager to disintermediate salespeople because sitting there, you know, listening to the show up and throw up sales message and sales conversation is just not, um, just not at all uh, valuable um, yeah. uh, to the customer. I think that's worth emphasizing then because... Um you know, many people listening to this and the audience is primarily learning and development people, people who have uh, a coaching business, um, they own a training business, perhaps they're freelance trainers. Um, that's often the mistake that people make. I used to make that mistake. Um, and I was told that until uh, such time as I was willing to change, is that it's very easy as someone who is pitching into, you know, a corporate environment, into a business, trying to get a contract, let's say in training, that. Um, we, we go in and we kind of bamboozle our prospect and tell them all about us and all the other companies working with us and all about our accolades and our achievements yeah. and our awards. And this is something that everyone hears all the time for everyone else. So if we're not differentiating, um, you know, we're, we're just going to be commoditized. Then this, is, right. you, this is what you said. You know, people yeah. then put intermediaries between decision makers and, and training providers because they say, I can't be bothered listening to another sales pitch where I have to listen to someone's you know, autobiography, I'd rather talk to someone who can actually tell me strategically why I should change and, and perhaps, um, you know, give insights so that can help make my job easier because everyone listens to one radio station and that's WIIFM, What's In It For Me. Yeah. 
you know, <laughs> That's effectively. Right. Uh-huh. So yeah. a challenger. And it doesn't mean you have to be a, a salesperson to be a challenger. I think that's worth emphasizing. We don't yeah. necessarily mean that this is only for salespeople, but someone running their own business can think like a challenger, yeah. uh, talk like a challenger. And that comes down to three things from your book, which I, I really, really agree with uh, fundamentally, which is the idea that you teach, you tailor, and you take control. So coming back to the idea of insight, um, let's put this in context. Someone coming into a, a corporate environment, let's say I have a training business and I want to get in the door of uh, company X. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got to obviously find the right people to have the conversation with. Now, if I go through HR, if I go through procurement, um, I'm in some kind of beauty parade. I've got all kinds of people who yeah. are you know, in the same thing as me. So I need to have a conversation with someone where they go, they go whoa, whoa, that's different. I, I didn't think of that. I didn't see that coming. In fact, tell me more. So let's focus on those three things. The idea that challengers do three things very well. They yeah. teach, they tailor, and they take control. Yeah. Um, so actually, Mark, you, and you, um, you also hit on, and we'll talk about this um, uh, here in a few minutes, I think, but uh, the core of the, the follow-on book was actually, who do, how do I find that person? Because that's not every customer um, who is going to be receptive to your idea. But back to the, the three skills, yeah, teach, tell, or take control. So those were, you know, um, we, there were a number of variables that factored together to describe the challenger profile, statistically speaking. And this was when we looked at those variables, this was the story they told to us is that it's really a, a tale of three skills. Um, teaching, the, the challenger uh, shows up with a new idea. Um, they see their goal as bringing that new idea. That's the value they deliver to the customer and they, the currency of, um, of the relationship in their, in their eyes um, and that is, that, is that new idea. And so that you know, corresponds to the, um, the insight I shared just a, a little bit ago around you know, today, um, 53% of customer loyalty is actually a function of, of the sales experience and specifically the ability of the salesperson to bring a new idea to the customer. As we like to say, you know, actually what's, what's happened is that how we sell today is actually more important than what we sell. It doesn't mean what we sell is unimportant. It's very important. But when it comes down to it, when we are in that you know, beauty contest, when we're up against um, uh, our, you know, our two biggest competitors and the, the customer's uh, uh, proclivity is to see us all as the same, what we've really got to do to differentiate is bring those new ideas um, that lead to our unique differentiators. But again, that's what challengers do. They are just hardwired to bring new ideas. They like nothing better than uh, engaging that customer who's gone down that learning journey, who thinks they know exactly what they need, uh, and telling that customer that they're wrong, uh, that they missed something, that they've uh, they've overlooked an opportunity, and there's a better way to do it. Um, second, uh, they tailor. So, um, you know, we talk a lot more about this in the second book, but uh, the idea being that you know, look, today's today's selling is often a game of herding cats, isn't it? You've got to, um, you know, in your in your case, you've got to engage the head of sales, you've got to engage the head of L and D or the head of HR, you've got to engage the procurement leader, you finance to the extent that there's a technology component. Well, IT is going to be at the table as well, and it's not just those functional leaders; it's all the people who work for them and their teams up and down the food chain. And so we've really got to be cognizant of our ability to uh, not just lead with a new idea, but not to use that idea like a hammer where every customer is a nail, but to actually um, tailor the way in which that idea is presented. So that's presented in a way that addresses the unique perspective of that, uh, that executive or that stakeholder or that, their functional area, what they measure, what matters to them, how this is going to make their lives easier. Uh, and so challenges are very good at taking that idea, in, if you will, um, uh, spinning it in different ways or positioning it in different ways for different stakeholders. And then lastly, they take control. This is the one that, uh, candidly, we get the most um, uh, pushback on, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, ironically. Um, you know, people look at the, the, the name of the book, uh, you know, the challenger sale, that's sort of suggestive of like a, uh, you know, an aggressive and a, uh, uh, you know, a really pushy salesperson just by the title, uh, admittedly. And then when they see this idea of taking control, it just, for them, that sends a, very pejorative um, uh, message around salespeople that, you know, we're talking about rude, aggressive, obnoxious salespeople, kind of that old used car salesman or that, um, you know, uh, uh, salesperson from Boiler Room or like the Wolf mm. of Wall Street or, you know, any of those, you know, <laughs> yeah. Glenn, Gary, Glenn Ross, any of these like, yeah. you know, uh, movies about sales. And so what we often say is, you know, look, it's not, um, it, 
there's a difference between um, being aggressive and pushy and obnoxious and actually being just being assertive, but at the same time being uh, empathetic, professional, respectful. Um, my favorite story um, here, I'll tell you a very quick one. So my favorite mm. story is um, uh, from a company we used to do business with in the industrial gases uh, industry. Um, they had long sought to sell to a big um, uh, healthcare system, big hospital system in the uh, Northeast of the U.S., and um, it, they tried and failed. Their biggest competitor had all of the business. Um, as you know, hospitals buy quite a bit of bottled you know, oxygen and CO2 and nitrogen and all these things. So it's a big piece of business, but the customer had never seen fit to, uh, to pull them in. But one day, the salesperson got a, a phone call from the customer and said, hey, we've decided to go uh, to potentially switch suppliers. We're putting that, this piece of our supply chain out to bid. We're going to send you the RFP, everything that we need is articulated in there. We've got time next Friday uh, with the buying committee. All the key executives will be in that room. We've got authority to make a decision to go to you know down select um, a certain number of suppliers and go to round two right after that meeting. Come on in. We'll send it over now. Um, heard great things about you. Uh, give your best shot. Now, what the head of sales told me said, you know, my average salespeople would have been my average salesperson would be quite excited to get that phone call, um, especially after years and years of trying and failing to even get it through the front door. But he said this, this um, salesperson who got the call, who he said was one of his uh, top challenger salespeople, um, was actually um, a, a bit, I would say, I wouldn't say demoralized, but uh, mm-hmm. disappointed to get that call. Because what, the, what he realized was that he was only being called so late in the game that um, effectively he and his solution and his company were just column fodder. They're really meant to uh, put leverage against the incumbent supplier and that this company really had no intention of switching suppliers. They're yeah. just going through the song and dance to get a better price. So he shows up at the, the committee, he, he accepted the, the opportunity to present to them, came in and handed out, uh, the first thing he did, 20 executives around the table, handed out his um, company's response to the RFP, which is a you know beautiful 300-page spiral-bound uh, document. And <laughs> yeah. the executives start opening it up. And he says, you know, with, with all due respect, if you wouldn't mind just pushing it to the center of the table, you know, out of reach or put it in your, your briefcase, um, I actually don't want to talk about what's in there. And everyone's looking at him quizzically thinking, well, why are you here? Um, and he says, you know, I could just regurgitate for you exactly what's in that document. Uh, suffice it to say, uh, we can do what you've asked for. We can do it at a great price and we think we can do it better than your current supplier. Um, but here's the thing. I'd like to spend my hour with you sharing with you the three things that weren't in the RFP that we were actually pretty surprised you guys weren't asking for and why we think it's these things are so important to actually solving the business problem you're trying to solve ultimately. Oh, that's brilliant. And, that's Yeah. And so... Now, you know, what's interesting, it was, a, it was a great Cinderella story, right? Because at the end, the, the head of procurement who was overseeing the process sent all of the suppliers packing. They redrew the RFP, um, uh, reissued it about a month later, and it included those criteria, which, uh, back to the lead two point, turns out were three things that that supplier knew they could do and the incumbent supplier could not. Um, and so it led to what made them unique. So it's quite a powerful story. But why I like it is it's not, you know... That salesperson at that moment was not rude. They weren't aggressive. They weren't obnoxious. They were actually quite respectful of the buying committee's time. And they said the, the best way to show respect uh, for their precious and limited time is to actually bring something new to the table. I'm not just going to get up here, show up and throw up and tell them exactly, parrot back what they've asked for in the RP. I'm going to deliver new value here. And so that was the approach. So that taking control idea, I think, is quite controversial, but is very, very important. And you see this around terms and conditions. You see it in RFP situations, as I just mentioned. You see it around pricing. Um, you see it uh, you know, all across the sales process. But it's really the idea that when the customer pushes back and the customer will push back, does the salesperson hold their ground? Um, and do they get the conversation back to value? That's really what we're talking about. We're not talking about mm. being rude and aggressive and obnoxious. But, um, but again, I will, I will say that you know, people have asked us, you know, okay, um, one of the big insights around these, these challengers is that they're actually quite good at building relationships. In fact, statistically speaking, they're the second best relationship builder of the five profiles. But it tells you they use the relationship as a means to an end, not as an end unto itself. And so right. people have often asked, well, why did you go with such a controversial title like challenger sale, you know, and taking control? It just sends the wrong message. Why, if, if what they're doing is really creating a new kind of relationship, why didn't you just call it the new relationship builder? Now, I often say, well, you probably wouldn't have read it if I had done that, <laughs> you know. So it's not clickbait. It is, it is honest and sincere and reflects the data. But the point remains that, you know, we've got to grab the customer by the lapel and shake them a bit. And, and bring that controversial idea. And then we pull them into the conversation. 
And if we had just called it, you know, relationship building 2.0 or the new relationship, building, <laughs> yeah. I guess it wouldn't have gotten as much attention. So. No, I wouldn't have bought the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so. But I, I liked even the artwork. I think it's very suggestive of, of the role uh, because I th- if, to describe the artwork now, it perhaps depends which edition people are looking at. I've sometimes found that uh, book covers change. Yeah. But but I think yours is quite quite. Um, Quite, quite cleverly done insofar as it shows two people and one person's conversations kind of slicing through the other. Yeah. And that's a great point. Job with that. that is not, yeah. I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> it really is <laughs> so. good because if you're just, you know, there to challenge and be a contrarian for the sake of it, uh, it does come across as aggressive. So people, yeah. um, and that's, I think that's another point I want to make is that um, it's, it's the sale. It's not just challenging, it's challenging to, to make a sale. Correct, so if yeah. people aren't pr- comfortable in taking control, they're not going to pressure the customer to get off the fence and make a decision. Yeah. And I think that's, to be honest, the thing that many people listening to this, people who are very comfortable training, very comfortable delivering some kind of program, uh, mm-hmm. perhaps consulting, they're very comfortable coaching. But the kind of the, the sharp pointy end is, is actually closing the deal. It's asking yeah. for the business. It's asking for the money. It's justifying the price. And that's the thing is, if people aren't actually delivering value, it makes it very hard to justify the price because you are in the minds of the person buying your training, your, your coaching, just like anyone else. So I think if someone is able to challenge my assumptions and make me feel that there's something I've missed, like the example you just gave, those guys came in, uh, and almost uh, passively, aggressively, but but very effective, very effectively. Uh, see that said, um, you know, see that prospectus. Let's bend that and let's talk about yeah. the things that we really think can deliver value here. I'm not sure many people are comfortable doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, it's um, it's kind of something that that most people will struggle with, and they recognize that it's that uh, I can go in and I can train, I can go in and I can perhaps teach, I could tell her, but sometimes I'm uncomfortable uh, taking control. If someone's uncomfortable asking for the business, what, what can they do? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And this is, I think, where you really get down, you know, we really get to the, the crux of the question around, you know, are challengers born or made? And I, mm. I think there's this, there's this perception that, well, you know, talking about asking for the business, um, effectively telling the customer they're thinking about it wrong or doing it wrong or that they missed something and create, you know, what we call this is, we call this um, creating uh, constructive tension moments. Uh, mm. In the sale, it's a core of what the challenger does. But many people, I think, come to this conclusion that that's just you. You either are born that way or you're not. You just it's very hard to learn it. But we've, you know, one of the the important things to remember about the research is we actually didn't look at personality um, based attributes. We looked at skills and competencies and uh, and behaviors. These are things that you know can be uh, learned as as your uh, as your community uh, in learning and development and folks who own their own um, coaching and training businesses know very well. Um, there, you know, there are ways to um, help drive new behaviors and help people learn new behaviors and competency and develop new mm. competencies. And so we know this can be done. And actually, the we had when we when we wrote the challenger after we wrote the challenger, we saw quite a bit of demand for uh, challenger training. So we actually created a separate business at CEB, which is now a, a standalone company called uh, Challenger Inc. Um, they uh, they're in the business of changing uh, training uh, people to be challengers, and it's a question they get quite a bit. But they've got a long track record now of showing. Here's a, a bit of a you know before profile of your sales force, and here's the after. And what's important to remember, I think, is that you're not going to ever change anybody 100% from one profile to the next. But mm. what you want to do is be able to show that that hard worker or that relationship builder, maybe not the lone wolf because they're going to do it their own way anyway. But in fact, they probably <laughs> won't show up at the training. Let's let's be honest. But, um, <laughs> I don't but, need this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know I do. Um, but what you need, what you're trying to do is not so much get these salespeople to change who they are, but actually get them to understand that today's selling in today's environment means adding some new tools to your tool belt um, and get to um, you know, leverage the skills and the approaches of the challenger when the situation demands it. And so I think for folks who are, are uncomfortable, I think one of the things that I often find the folks who are least comfortable are those relationship builders. And what we found in the research was, and I think this can be very kind of off-putting for a person who's grown up as a classic sort of relationship builder needs diagnosis rep. We found that um, uh, challengers um, are uh, roughly 40% of high performers. And when you look at complex sales, it jumps to 54%. And the thing that's quite consistent when you look at the high performing population is that the percentage in average sales that are relationship builders is only about 7%. And when you go to high complexity sales, it drops down to 4%. So these relationship builders really do 
um, fade in terms of the high performer population. And that can be really disconcerting for folks. One of the things I've really come to appreciate is salespeople are actually quite self-aware um, as a profession. And I have lots of people come up to me after I present and say, I, I love the research, love the message. It makes perfect sense, but I, I'm a relationship builder, you know, and I don't know that I can, I don't know that I, as Mark, as you said, I don't know that I can push the customer's thinking. I don't, I don't like creating tension with my customers. I like helping them out and doing what they need me to do and that kind of thing. And um, what I think the light bulb moment for those relationship builders, and this is what the folks at Challenger Inc. would say as well, is realizing that um, really what you're doing by bringing new insight that changes the way the customer thinks, even if their first reaction to it isn't positive, what you're doing is actually building a better relationship. But you're building a relationship founded on business value, not simply on being responsive and doing whatever the customer asks you to do. Um, because if that's all you're doing, that's not a very defensible um, wall or moat to build around that customer. You're only as good as the next cheaper supplier who comes along. But mm. if the customer sees you as somebody who has built a relationship where they can rely on you to bring new ideas, well, what happens when you develop that kind of relationship is the customer doesn't call you at 60% of the way through the purchase journey. They call you first. In fact, you know, great my point. company right now, great we've point. got a, a great challenger relationship with the company. We've been talking to them for some time. We've talked to them quite a bit. And they said, hey, we're going to go out to RFP and we're going to send it to you guys. But do you mind sitting down with us and helping us create the RFP? We said, well, absolutely. We would love to do that. So, Perfect. You know, Perfect. That's, but that's exactly, that's, that's what you earn is that kind of mm. relationship because the customer is thinking, I'm not going to move a muscle until I talk to Mark. Because every time I think about, you know, inside sales or development or coaching, uh, and I sit down with Mark, he always teaches me something new. So I may, you know, um, ask Mark to compete in an RFP, but I'm going to talk to him first to even know what should go, what should I be looking for? Um, what are the things that are going to uh, befall me that I, I'm not aware of right now? So I think for those folks, it's, it's really getting comfortable with that. And one of the last tips I'd share is, you know, think about, you know, before you go, it's not about, it's not about um, a lecture. It's about creating a different kind of dialogue for the customer. And um, one of the things I think really helps folks is, well, two ideas. One is before you go in and you, you're, you know, your knee-jerk reaction is to, to ask the customer what's keeping them up at night. How about before you go in to meet with the customer, do a bit of research, do a bit of thinking, and think about what do you think is keeping that customer up at night? Um, and here's a slightly different question, which is what should, keep, what should be keeping that customer up at night? What is the thing that mm. frustrates you that most buyers of these, the products and services you sell don't realize is so important to get right? And how do you actually start the conversation with that? Because that's really ultimately what the customer's uh, looking for. And then the last piece for those who are really nervous about this, here's what I'd say is um, try it with some of your stalled or stuck accounts or deals, right? Those customers who said no or no mm. for now, or they just stopped returning your emails. You have nothing but to lose. You? You've got nothing to lose. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. So we'll come to Tether in a moment, which is the company you're working for currently, because that fascinates me. Um, but you, you alluded, and this is a nice bridge between, you know, the challenger concept, but finding someone in the company you're, you're hoping to get into who is receptive to this. Let's call them the challenger customer, which is neatly enough the, 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 yeah. <laughs> the book which, which followed the challenger sales. So let's go into that very briefly as to, you know, what that mobilizer profile is and who yeah. that person is. Sure. Um, so we we actually um, found, you know, if you think about sales in a sort of simple construct, even complex sales, um, the customer kind of moves through three distinct phases. Phase number one, where we meet the customer, is their status quo. It's the way they do things today. Maybe they don't use a solution uh, that of the nature that we sell. Maybe they use a competitor's solution. Maybe they have a homegrown solution, you name it. But they're in their status quo. Um, the next step is to get them to agree on a new way forward, to agree on our vision. And then the third step is to get them to buy something, to actually sign the contract. So uh, Challenger, the Challenger sale was really a story about the move. Yes, while challenging happens across all aspects of the sale from beginning to end, um, it really, at the end of the day, is a story of the first move, the move from the status quo to getting the customer to agree on a new way forward, to agree on a vision that leads to what makes you unique, what makes mm. your solution unique. Um, but as people in sales know, that's often the beginning of the sale, not the end of the sale. Because what happens next is that individual um, has to get everyone else on their side bought in. You know, they've got to go and build consensus. And as we know, and this is really the, some of the data we shared from the in the challenger customer, left to their own devices, customers are very um, unlikely to uh, build the consensus on their own. They suffer from a great deal of, of dysfunctional group thing. Mm. Um, and uh, they will default back to a lowest common denominator uh, answer, which is 
stay the course, avoid disruption, save money, don't do anything risky. And so you might get that one person really excited about your idea, but then they go behind closed doors and the other 20 people they have to get on board, they, they struggle to do so. And then they come back and say, yeah, you know, I just, people aren't up for it for a variety of reasons. And then, you know, the deal goes into the, what we call the solutions graveyard. So the challenger customer is really about that second move from going w- from the one person you've gotten bought into the deal at the end of the new way forward to get into a purchase decision. What we found is that uh, challengers do a number of things that are quite different across that second phase of the, uh, of the purchase journey. One of the most um, different things that they do is they actually sell to different people entirely. In fact, you mentioned this earlier, um, which is across that whole range of stakeholders. What we've really got to do is to find our proxy on the customer side, because mm. when, when the, our meeting ends and that person leaves and the next thing they do is they go try to rally the troops on their side and build consensus, we've got to make sure we're putting our message into the hands of a capable person. And oftentimes in, in sales, you know, the conventional wisdom is you need to go out and find a, a champion or a coach or an advocate. And it goes by many different names depending on the, the sales training program. But what we found is, again, using a very similar methodology we use for Challenger, turns out customers fall into one of seven different profiles. I won't go through all seven here. There's okay. a lot more in the book. Mm-hmm. But the highest level, you've got, um, you've got mobilizers, uh, talkers, and blockers. And so I'll start from back to front. Blockers are are the status quo folks there. Um, in, you know, the folks you reach out to and say, we're in execution right mode right now, Mark. We've got a three-year plan. We're two years into it. Call me in a year and maybe we'll have a conversation. But they're mm. very heads down. They're very focused on their execute against their plan and avoiding uh, distractions. You've got uh, talkers. Talkers are um, wonderful human beings. They are great for uh, giving you information, uh, I- introducing you to their colleagues, helping you understand how is this purchase decision going to get made, how does this person, who's more senior, this person or that person? Is this person's stock on the rise or the decline? Help me understand the overall culture. You guys said you had a bad experience with your last training program. Tell me more about that. You know, they're, they're great uh, in terms of talking and providing information. But the thing about talkers is uh, when we look at the data, they're very unlikely to stick their necks out to forge consensus across a group of dysfunctional internal stakeholders. Uh, mobilizers are quite different. Mobilizers are are motivated by new ideas. And we call mobilizers the challenger customer. This is your twin on the um, as a challenger on the customer side. These folks are motivated by big ideas. They have the respect um, and um, ability, um, respect amongst their peers and the ability to get people on board with a disruptive new way forward. It's one of these, um, uh, it, there are often these people back in the, I don't know that you had this in Ireland, but back in the States, there used to be this, um, uh, there's this healthy cereal that a company was trying to hawk for many, many years. And the commercial they had on TV back when I was a kid was the Mikey Likes It commercial, which is Mikey, the super picky eater. When he ate life cereal, all the other kids were like, wow, Mikey likes it. If Mikey likes it, then it must be good, right? So you think about your your mobilizers, your challenger customers are kind of like those folks. They are very, very discerning. They will invariably push back on your idea. They are They are debaters themselves. Their bar for a smart idea is extremely high. But if you can get that person, if you can find that person, identify them and get them on board and then arm them to take your idea and push it through the organization, um, you have a much better chance of actually getting to a signed deal. So mm. we, we recommend in the book, and it's, it's a great thought exercise, you look through these different um, customer profiles to actually ask yourself, especially with those deals that are kind of just sort of blowing in the wind, they're just sort of stuck in no man's land, they're, the customer hasn't said no, but they haven't said yes. Um, are you selling to a mobilizer or have you actually hitched your wagon to a talker? Because if you have, that's probably the explanation for why nothing's gotten done. So we go through how to identify those folks, how to engage them, uh, how to equip them with tools and content to make sure that they can go sell on your behalf, um, and then how to to leverage those folks to get to a signed deal ultimately. And so that's really, if you will, the follow-on piece uh, to Challenger. Challenger is about bringing that new idea. This is about getting the customer to buy the idea and actually sign the contract. And this is all, of course, based upon research. That's something Correct. to emphasize. Yeah. It's not something that someone has, you know, put together. You didn't put this together with your colleagues uh, uh, as a result of some conversation um, in some bar some night. This is stuff yeah. based on rigorous, <laughs> much rigorous as I research. would have, pref- much as I would have preferred that. You're right. <laughs> it would have been nice. <laughs> so let's let's go on to then um, your current work, which which yeah. is the company you work with called Tether. That's T E. 
T-E-T-H-R. Is that right? Tether. That's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah, because okay. we're a startup, so we, we can't oh. afford the extra vowel. So we... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? It, it's, it's very interesting because my world is principally uh, inside sales. Uh, that's kind of my... my my well expertise at the reluctance with the reluctance of using that word expertise i'm not an expert but uh it's it's my area of kind of shall we say uh focus and that's inside sales coaching but yeah i think it's a fascinating uh insight that you we kind of had in the pre-call to this was that um a lot of sales classically has been this kind of duopoly or this batman and robin routine where there's someone who uh perhaps uh makes the initial call and they've got some kind of uh, farming uh, role and then the person doing all the kind of uh, banner grabbing or attention grabbing stuff is out there in the field meeting people typically yeah. there's a there's a kind of a uh, deference in terms of what both of those parties earn but increasingly a yeah. lot of people are actually finding that uh, inside sales is becoming more prominent so that that's kind of yeah. where I think perhaps that that conversation analysis yes so let's 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 uh let's let you do the rest of, of the well yeah you're, you're quite right we we see as we talked about before um this so this technology of you know um it very simply put and i don't know you know how much your audience knows about this but basically what we're talking about is taking a conversation with the customer so that could be a a service conversation in a call center setting it could be a sales conversation over zoom or or mm. webex or skype um uh, converting that audio, that unstructured audio into unstructured text using transcription technology, which has gotten, um, you know, light years better even over the past few years and, and much more accurate today, accounting for accents and poor audio quality and all these kinds of things. Uh, taking that unstructured, unstructured now text and turning it into structured insight using machine learning. So basically what companies are, are able to do is effectively listen at scale. So imagine in an organization where you might have a thousand inside salespeople and you're and they're engaging with customers over, you know, a web conferencing platform or maybe just over the phone, uh, you're recording all those conversations today in, in the old days, the way we used to try to figure out what is it that our best salespeople are doing? What are the techniques? What are the things they're saying that are different and how do we teach everyone else to do the same thing? Mm. Or, Hey, we just invested in the sales training program. Are people actually using the skills that we've um, that we've invested in uh, driving across the sales force? The old way we do that is to spot check. You know, we would listen to some of the call recordings and uh, and we'd make our best best guess. Um, today, we can actually transcribe all of those calls and use machine learning to basically have a machine listen on our behalf. As long as we guide that machine to understand what we're looking for, what's important, whether those are challenger behaviors or or other behaviors and skills, whether that's Hey, we marketing spent a year creating this insight-based message, and we want everyone leading with that in the sales call. Um, are they doing it? And how is the customer responding? Do we need to adjust the message? These are things that we can now do using technology. I think what you know historically that technology it kind of came out of the call center actually, which is of mm. course a phone-based by definition um, uh, organization. Now it's moved into chat and social, you know, Facebook Messenger and other channels that that service organizations use. But it's um, recently come into sales as well. And the reason is, um, Mark, as you said, that companies are realizing that um, actually having inside sales organizations is a, f a far more effective way to cover the market. Uh, and by the way, customers like it quite a bit more because mm -hmm. that bag carrying salesperson who visits them once every six months is all well and good. But you know, I can have an inside salesperson who I can talk to um, you know, every few weeks or is right there, um, you know, a phone, a phone call away. And so companies have realized, and I've, I've been talking to big B2B um, suppliers who uh, told me heads of sales have said, we are actively taking heat off the street and moving them to more of an inside sales channel. Um, when you do that, the, the benefit is now you can capture their sales conversations in a way that's really hard when the, you know, the salesperson is sitting in the customer's office. Um, and so you can capture those and you can actually mine those using technology. But I, I do think and one of the things I said before we got started is I've always thought the term inside sales is a bit ironic in a world mm. where even most field sales people do most of their selling over the phone or over web conferencing anyway. Um, it's more efficient. Um, it's uh, Customers actually prefer it, you know, and it's it's less invasive. You know, the customer doesn't have to prepare for an office visit and meet you down in the lobby and escort you up and all this stuff. Um, you know, there's a time and a place for live uh, live meetings, but I think many companies have realized they're actually equally, if not more effective, doing it uh, through an inside sales channel. So I think that's where suddenly, wow, now we have the opportunity to capture all the mystery that used to happen out in the field is now happening in a contained environment, and we should be collecting that data 
understanding that data and mining it for insights about what is it that our best salespeople do and, and what should we be training and coaching on and are they using the messages we created and are they using the program that we bought um, uh, from one of these uh, training shops because we spent a lot of money on it, took everyone off the road or off the phones mm. for, for a week to get trained and we don't even know if they're doing it or not. Um, and then ultimately, did any of these things we created, did they actually work? Did they, were they the things that actually drove that the customer outcome, the higher sales conversion, the higher deal size, uh, et cetera? So you're using effectively some kind of um, yeah, AI, artificial intelligence mm-hmm. or, or algorithmic learning to, yes. to uh, watch for perhaps keywords or, or maybe messages and identify whether people are actually yeah. using it. Yeah. That's right. So, mm-hmm. so one, uh, an, an easier thing, so keywords are pretty straightforward. So, mm-hmm. you know, they, and it's actually, by the way, it's quite powerful too to just know, again, if I had a thousand inside sale, uh, salespeople having conversations with customers all day long, and we're wondering um, who, what are the objections that we get from our customers or who are the competitors that these customers mention most often? Or, you know, um, uh, uh, competitors just launched a new uh, discount program. Uh, it's called the you know the tier one discount program. How often is tier one discount program being referenced by our customers in sales calls? So it gives us that data, so we know is this a real problem or is this um, or opportunity or not? Um, but it's um, I think the even higher level stuff is te- using machine learning and using algorithmic learning, as you said, to um, surface concepts. So not just mm-hmm. keywords, uh, but actually concepts. So think about before we're talking about teaching, tailoring, and taking control. Uh, in our work, we found that when salespeople uh, uh, teach the customer, when they bring new ideas, there are a defined set of phrases and utterances that you can together um, bundle and teach a machine. When this happens, this equals teaching. So flag it in a call so that we know when it's happened. We can tra- track it, dashboard it, dashboard it, take it down to the salesperson level, find exactly in the call where it's happening. Or... Um, uh, customer confusion. Um, when in our work mm. at Tether, we have a machine learning category called confusion. We have one called frustration. And what turns out that there are literally thousands of ways that customers say they're confused or that they're frustrated. In frustration, most of those um, means of expression are not really safe for work and um, are, are typically expressed in four letters. So I won't share them on your <laughs> podcast. But, <laughs> but yeah. you, you know, that's the thing is you can't just tell a machine, hey, go, go find uh, frustration. You've got to teach it that these thousand phrases we're going to call, we call it a machine learning category. Mm-hmm. When any of these things happen in this specific context, that equals frustration. Now I have structure that I brought to that unstructured insight and I can track those things. So the same with any sales, you know, a sales training program is always going to be built around a core set of um, behaviors, competencies, techniques, and those things can be codified and then uh, extracted from those calls so that a sales manager or sales leader knows is the training working? Is the new message working? Who's doing it and who's not? Um, and who needs refresher training or maybe just a kick in the pants that, hey, we invested in this uh, this program. We expect you to use the skills that you've been taught. So again, demystifying a lot of the uh, mysterious stuff out there in sales development. Yeah, I, I think that's the future. Absolutely. it's it's uh, We've got to use machine technology to be able to understand, is training actually working? Because you can give people training and coaching uh, all day long till the cows come home. And, and a lot of time, Unfortunately, it's taken up by you know sales leaders having to spend time desk side with someone, reinforcing what someone should know and should be doing. So we need some kind of technology to to free up our, our sales leaders to be able to focus in on the parts that actually make a difference to the bottom line. That's right. That's okay, right. listen, I'm I've, I'm delighted we had this conversation. I found this fascinating. Maybe we can. Uh, at a future episode, come back and focus in on, on Tether specifically, because I think that is really, really leading edge stuff. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do it. There's some just fascinating stuff we're learning mm-hmm. about um, uh, sales effectiveness and, and what great sellers are doing. Um, the relief, I guess, for me, um, with my name on the Challenger Sales, that a lot of what they're doing is actually challenging customer thinking. So that's great to see. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, it is fascinating stuff. And I think it, it really does give um, uh, sales leaders that, that data so we can kind of get out of, um, exit the age of guesswork and going mm. by hunch and actually get into the age of a, a database way of um, uh, helping to improve performance across our sales force. Matt, it was a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much for your time. Mark, it was great being with you and uh, thanks so much. Hey, thanks Matt for being our guest on the show this week. 
I'm really, really interested in the technology that Matt explained towards the end of today's episode, something called Tether, particularly given my area, which is inside sales. So thank you, Matt, for walking us through the main ideas behind the book, The Challenger Sale, uh, and of course, The Challenger Customer, and finally, that insight you gave us into Tether. And that's something we, I think, sparks interest in me, and it might in you if that's your area, the idea of, of inside sales. And that's something we'll come back to in detail in a future episode of the podcast. But before we go, it's good to let you know we will have signed copies of each of Matt's three books as a prize for a lucky listener shortly. Keep out, uh, or rather keep your ears pinned to the ground and uh, to social media because we'll be announcing that as soon as I have further details. My sincere thanks to you, of course, for tuning in again this week. Thank you for all your support. It's lovely to know you're listening and that you're finding this content and these episodes valuable. I'd love to hear from you personally on social media if you'd like to give us some direction as to the kinds of content which will help you with your training business. Please leave a rating on Apple Podcasts because, as I say every single week, it helps us to promote the show and to attract the right guests who can help you through their experience with your training business entrepreneurial journey. You can check out the podcast, as always, on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, and on Spotify, and of course on several other podcast platforms. I'm not sure which of them to mention because there are so many where our episodes end up, and I'm delighted that that is the case because it's helping people to find the show. So whatever platform it is uh, for you, whichever one does it for you, you will find episodes every single Thursday. Keep an eye out, of course, on Facebook, on Twitter and Instagram. So check us out and join the conversation. Let us know what you think. And keep an eye out for news of book competitions. I did mention we'll be giving away a signed copy of each of Matt's three books at some point in the near future. And the reason is readers are leaders, as I always say. Leaders are readers. You need to be reading to be able to offer insight to your customers and in doing so, separate yourself from the competition, just as Matt said today in this episode. There's a fresh episode next Thursday of the Training Business Podcast. Until then, have a great week. Bye for now. once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Go to trainingbusiness.com and subscribe right now to be notified of great competitions, upcoming VIP episodes, and amazing special offers to help you succeed in your training business. See you next time.